Turn in your Bible to the book of First Peter, if you would. First Peter chapter 5. We are at the end of this letter. First Peter chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 12. First Peter chapter 5 verse 12 says, Through Salvanus... Our faithful brother, so, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this church, for this, these people, for the gathering around your word. I pray that today as your word goes forth that we would, we would think through of how to apply these things to our life. And may we glorify and honor you as a result of hearing these things today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I believe that we see uh, or hear scriptures and we, we just think of it as stories in scripture. And, and we, we kind of put them in the category of a fairy tale and not really real. But scripture is full of real people, real circumstances, real context, if you will, the context of life. And you see that in particular passage sometimes more than, than others. And this is one of those passages. This is one of those passages that you read and you think, this is real life happening now. This is what's going on now. Uh, at least at that, that time. These are real people, real struggles. These are the, the things that we struggle with. And you can tell that this is this is something real, not a fairy tale. This is a letter that was written from the Apostle Peter to the minor to the churches at Asia Minor that was part of the Roman Empire, but it was the distant part of the Roman Empire. It wasn't Rome. Rome would have been the center and then it would then it would expand out from there. This was kind of on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. It wasn't the the, the vast metropolis of, of Rome. And um these churches would have received Peter's letter. Salvanus would have brought that letter to them. He would have done that in person. And it would have gone something like this. There's a letter from Peter. Peter who? The Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter. That Peter? Yes, that Peter. We know about that Peter. We've met that Peter maybe from time to time. Um. Where's the letter? Well, I sent it to the scribe. The scribe would have uh, carefully reproduced that letter because it would have been written or it would have been read to the church on Sunday morning. But before then, it would have been it would have been rewritten by a scribe, and that scribe would have counted the number of letters going across, number of the letters going down the page, number of words on the page. He would have analyzed each page, and he would have uh, made sure that that letter. Uh, or, or made sure he copied every bit of that letter correctly. That letter then was to be sent to the next church on Sylvanus's list. 
And he would have gone from church to church giving this letter. That, that would have been the typical way to do this. That's real life. That's not FedEx. That's not, uh, that's not, uh, you know, the U.S. Postal Service. That's just a person saying, this is, this is a, a letter from Peter. A letter from Peter. What do we know about Peter? Well, they knew Peter. He was a significant player, right? In the church. He was an apostle. He, he was an apostle, meaning then uh, the whole church was based upon, founded upon the uh, teaching of the apostles and prophets. At that time, Peter was most significant, one of the most significant prophets or apostles. He was a fisherman starting off. He, uh, he turned uh, disciple of Jesus Christ and became one of the, the leading disciples um, he declared the great confession before the other disciples. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He recognized that first, yet he was one of the ones who denied Christ three times. He had walked on water and survived. He, he was the one that ran down to the tomb. He, he was concerned about Christ. He loved Christ. Um, he saw the resurrected Christ, and he also did miracles in the early church. He pronounced judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira. He raised Dorcas from the dead. He was um, he was arrested as for preaching Christ to the Jewish leaders. They did not like that, and he stood before his enemies, knowing that they could. They could kill him, but he stood before his enemies saying the famous phrase, we must obey God rather than man. He was a witness to the, the first converts and to the Gentile world, moving the church, church's focus from the, from the Jewish world to the non-Jewish world to the expansion of the gospel. He was miraculously delivered from prison by an angel while the church was praying for him. He interacted, of course, with the Apostle Paul, and he was, he was not a very highly educated man, but he preached to thousands, and thousands came to know the Lord through Peter and his preaching. He was known throughout the church, obviously, but he was known really probably throughout the Roman world. It was said of these disciples that they turned the world upside down for Christ. He was an important figure to the church, right? We, we list that, we, we hear those things, and we think, wow, this this Peter has gravitas. He has clout. He is important. Yet he cared for these little churches on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. He saw the need to inform these churches to be able to, to handle the persecution in a God-honoring way. And so he writes this letter. And he comes to the conclusion of the letter. And it's pretty typical of a conclusion here. He he expresses his gratitude, the one who helped him write this letter, Silvanus, and the one who's going to deliver it. He, uh, he would uh, give a, a brief summary of the main exhortation of the letter, and then he, he gives a heartfelt farewell to these people. Pretty simple. Until you look below the surface, until you look at, at what's really going on here, and you begin to see the circumstances, and it's a little scary... You begin to see the heart of Peter. This is real life. This is real people. 
This is a real love for the Lord. This is a man who is just trying to serve the Lord. So I want to unpack this little three little verses here. And I want us to see the, the authority of this message. Where does this authority come from? And I want us to see the, the essence of this message. And then we'll look at the, the compassion that Peter had for, his, for the church here. First, let's look at the authority. Uh, we don't have those on the screen, but uh, uh, the authority of Peter's message. Why should they believe this message? How, how can they confirm, yes, this is, this is the Peter. This has authority from Peter. How, how do they confirm this? Well, Peter says with his own words, he says, Through Silvanus, if you look back at verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brethren, or brother, for I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Now, I want you to understand what's going on. Silvanus was, would act as a, what theologians would call, an, an amenuensis. He would have um, uh, written down or recorded what Peter said to the churches. Um, now, Silvanus was a, a, a prophet. He was probably a, maybe even a, a scribe before he became saved. Uh, he was a, we know he was a Roman citizen in Acts chapter 16. But he was the one that traveled with Paul. And another name that was given to him is, is Silas. And you'll remember Silas. Silas went with Paul on the second missionary journey. Silas would have been his, well, it would have been the, the Greek version of the Aramaic. It would have been Paul would have been his original name, but Silas would have been the, Hebrew, the Aramaic version of that. And then Salvanus, Salvanus would have been the Latin version of that. So it's, he's known in Scripture by two Names here, but it's the same same person. And Peter says that he is a faithful brother, a faithful brother, loyal, loyal to the church, loyal to the people of God, loyal to the truth, for the loyal to the cause of of Christ. He is very helpful to Paul, and now he's very helpful to to Peter here. He would record it like a secretary recorded what Peter said, and and maybe even. Uh, polished it up because when you look at the Greek, as what they they tell me that the Greek that that he uses, and this is why this is uh, this is somewhat a little controversial because they read the book of Peter or the letter of Peter, and they say Peter could have never written that. He was a he was just a common fisherman. He would have never been able to write in such fancy we would just say fancy Greek. But Sylvanus probably helped him do that. And that would have been typical of that day. That would have been uh, not uncommon. Now, at this point, in the little greeting, or the little uh, conclusion here, Salvanus would have picked down, uh, put down the pen, and, and Peter would have picked up the pen, and it would have been written in Peter's handwriting. So that it would kind of verify. And so you kind of get, uh, you kind of get the, the flair or the, the feeling here that, that Peter is now writing this. And that's probably what's happening. Again, that's... That's typical, and it would have authenticated that this really is from the Peter, the Apostle Peter. And it would have brought some authority with this message. It would have been hand-delivered then by Salvanus. He would have gone and, and delivered these things. Now, but I want you to notice the one little phrase. He says, through Salvanus, I have written to you, written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? There, 
That this is the grace of God. What is the this? This letter. This what he has written. This message. This message from God. This is a grace from God. Now, that's the true authority, isn't it? Peter has authority. But the real authority is that this is a letter from God. What we have just gone through the past, really, what, two years, three years, in, in going through the book of 1 Peter, it was a message from God to the churches because he is concerned at how they handle the persecution that they were, they were facing. This is the, the mind of God on the issue. What does the church do when they go into persecution? Now, this is a, just pulling back the, the, the veil of inspiration of Scripture. This is inspired by God. Peter understood this. He understood this was a, a message to the church. Now, he was the one exhorting. He was the one testifying. But he recognized that this was God's work. This was God working through him to do this. This was a God-inspired work. He was just sharing the, the commands and the things that were on his heart. But he recognized the real authority here come from God. Came from God. That's where the real weight of this is. These are God's commands. When uh, I, I know I've used this before, but this is a good illustration. When you know, if I would tell my youngest son, "Go tell your uh, your siblings to to come here," I want to speak to them. Well, the authority is not in that youngest son. You know, they would go and, and he would go and and say, "Dad wants you to come." Well, you know, who are you to boss me around, right? The real authority, though, is the word "dad." <laughs> And when we understand that this is from God, then, then their ears perked up. This is, this is from God. This is God's Word. They understood this. And, and why is this important? Because this is a hard message. This, this is life and death. This is persecution. They may lose their job. They may uh, be pulled away from their family. They may be put in prison. They may be, they may be killed. For the taking the stance that this letter has. And it, it's sobering. It's serious. This is not just playing church. This isn't just playing games here. Life and death is on the line here. And if somebody's going to put their neck on the line, they need to know this is what God says. This is what God says. Because that's going to take me to the very place that I'm willing to put my neck on the chopping block and, and say, I have to do this because this is what God would want me to do. This is what God would say. Now, we see these are, these are real men. These are real players, real people. And they care for the church. They care for the church. Now, it's really kind of a, a picture for us, isn't it? We, we are just the hands and feet for God. And we care for one another. We are His feet. We do His bidding. We are, we do the bidding of the King, and that's God Himself. Now, folks, we need to, we need to see ourselves in that light. Being used by the Lord, not like a, a puppet, but submitting willingly. Lord, what can I do to, to enhance your body, to help your church today? Let me just apply this quickly. There, there's a couple of ac applications that I want to uh, just point out here. We, we must have faithful men like this, don't we? Salvinus, 
He was a, a faithful man. And so I regard him, Peter says. He, he was faithful. We have to have those men who are committed to the people of God, who are committed to the truth, to make sure that this message got to the churches unaltered, committed to the truth. People had to, to trust Him. He had to be faithful. Faithful. That is a term, folks, that I believe that we're missing today. We have to have people who are faithful day in and day out, every week, faithful, year after year after year, committed decade after decade to using their gifts and their talents and their abilities for the, for the church selflessly sacrificing themselves for the good of the the church, for God's people. That's what you see here. That's a good example. That's a good that's a good illustration of our faith the faithfulness that we need to be. You know, Dave was just up here. I consider Dave Haldeman one of those kind of guys. He's just given his his really his life to the church for many, many years, decades of his life spent serving the church. Another point of application, the information found in this book, in this, this letter, is, has authority behind it. This is God's message. This is not to be second-guessed. We can go to the gallows, we can go to prison for what we believe here, and build, building our convictions upon this letter. It's very sobering to us. But we stand with Peter, and we will say, we must obey God rather than man. That's what Peter did, and he stood, and he, he writes this. This comes with authority. This comes with authority. And the authority is not inherent in Peter, although he had some authority. He had some clout in the church, but it comes from God himself. Now, number two. Let's look at the essential message that Peter is giving here. And it's in four little words here. Look at this. The end of verse 12 he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This message that I delivered over to you, that was delivered by Silvanus, read it, comprehend it, and then stand in it. Stand in its truths. It's the grace of God given over to you. Stand firm in it. That's the command. That's the command. He's just reiterating the main point. We've seen this before. And verse uh, nine, chapter five, verse nine. Just a couple of weeks ago, we've we've seen this. It's the thrust of the the whole passage, the whole letters. To stand firm is to ha- stand with conviction and strength. It's the same idea that that James had. James said the same thing. Stand firm. Paul said, uh, having done all to stand. It was the passage that was read for us earlier by Joey Beckett. We're to stand. It's a defensive stance. That's the idea. It's like a, a rock. It, it's like a rock that's standing against the current of the new river. You ever gone down there and seen some of those big boulders? And you, and you think over the, the years, you would think that thing would move with the, the pressure of the current, but it doesn't. It just stands. That's the idea. It's like the guards at Buckingham, Buckingham Palace. They, they stand. They stand like a, a lighthouse that's being crashed with the, the waves. And it stands. And folks, we are in enemy territory. 
We're fighting an, an enemy here. We're in enemy territory. Sink that. Let that sink in. We don't. We don't fight. We don't go after the enemy. We just. We just stand. We fight an enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. This is his terrain. This is his territory. And all we have to do is stand, and he will bring the battle to us. That's the idea. Now, the question is, what does it mean to stand? We, we see this idea throughout Scripture, really. And what does it mean? It's, it can be a little nebulous. And so we have, to, we have to think about this. Let me give you a little statement here. We stand as children of God in Christ for truth and righteousness in enemy territory by the grace of God. Let me say that again. We stand as children of God in Christ for truth and righteousness in enemy territory and we stand by the grace of God. Now, let's flesh that out a little bit. Exactly what does that mean? We stand... For truth, we stand against the lies of the devil. Satan is the father of lies and he is issuing lies all the time into our society. And we resist him. That's what Peter said in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 9. But resist him firm in your faith. Firm. Now, how do we resist him? I just want to give you an example. You, you know the example. Christ was tempted by, by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes to him, to him three different times and... And he says, here, do this or do that. And, and what, is, what does Jesus say? Every occasion, every time, he said three little words. It is written. It is written. That's the way he handled Satan. That's the way he handled the, the, the enemy was with the word of God. It is written, Satan. And he had based his whole life on the principles of this word. That's Christ's example. That's our example of standing. Not caving to the world, the peer pressure of the world. Not conforming to world views, the typical world views of today. Not yielding even to our own flesh, the the enemy within. We are to stand like a, a, a beacon to the world of truth and righteousness. For a better way, for their safety. And, and we stand, we stand firm. Against Satan. We also stand firm in Christ. Now that's an important phrase, right? Because there's a, I'm afraid there's a lot of people who, who stand. And I'm not sure they stand in Christ. What, is that, what does that even mean? Um, when we look at a few verses. Go ahead and turn over. You could turn over to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. We'll just read one quick verse here. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. We, we see that Christ, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil is a, has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Christ is the one who does the offensive attacking of Satan. He's the one that came and he crushed Satan. And, and then he finished that work on the cross, we, we know. Christ is the one who does, who has done the work. He is the one, he is the one that has won the battle. He has crushed the head of our enemy. 
Now, the, 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 the head is crushed, but the tail is still flopping around. We see that, and that scares us, but Satan has no real power, and it's because Christ, because of Christ. Now, why can we stand? Because Christ has done that work. We stand in Christ. We stand in Christ, and my fear is there are people here that think they're in Christ, but they're, they're not in Christ. How do we become in Christ? We, we don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own self. We turn from that sinful life and we turn toward Christ and we, we embrace Him, all that He says. We surrender ourselves to Him, obey Him, put our faith and trust in Him. And that's, that's salvation, isn't it? And that's kind of what Paul is talking about here, or Peter is talking about here, that he exhorted. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, let's look at that a little bit more closely. We stand firm against Satan. We stand firm in Christ. But we also stand firm in the faith, in our faith, Peter says. And let me show you this in, in Scripture. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy or, or compassion or even grace, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's God's grace that we're saved. It's our salvation. We stand firm in this grace that God has given. Down in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets and the prophets, uh, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful inquiries and searches. Um, they were prophesying, they were writing these things down, and, and they were seeing this special grace to these people, and they wanted to know more about it. That's the point. But it came to us. And verse 13, same chapter, Therefore prepare your minds... For action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We stand in the grace of God. We stand because God is the one who, who created us, a new creature. We have a living hope. We have a, a salvation. And we stand in those facts. Now, that's important because... When it comes to, to putting my neck on the chopping block, when it comes to being persecuted, I have to have something in my mind, something that, of authority in which to stand. Now, let me show you a few more verses. Verse, um, verse 17, same chapter. If you address as Father, now that's us. We address Him as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life uh, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We stand because of the work that Christ did, we stand in the grace of God. He initiated. He's doing it. We just stand in Christ. And what helps us to stand is knowing the value, the cost. It cost Christ everything. Chapter 2 and verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of God, His kindness to us. 
verses 4 and 5, the coming and coming to you as a living stone, which was which has been rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, uh, living stones are being built up, a special house. God's specially crafted out a house, the church, and He's building His church up, and we're part of that building. We're part of what God is, is doing. And He says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That, that's us. And then he goes on down in verse 9. This is so precious. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's us. It's God's grace from start to finish. And we stand in that grace. We we uh, rehearse in our minds that grace, what God has done for us. And that causes us to, to have a love for God and a, a humility and a fear for God. We stand. We look at this. We are amazed at what God has done. We can keep going in verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. How precious is that? We stand in that grace. And in chapter 2, verse 25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd. We, we, We don't... We don't have the anxiety that we do, that we used to. We, we've come to Christ. We find rest in Him. And then, and then we, we see in chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10, it says, but resist Him firm in your faith. In our faith? Yeah, in our faith. Strong in our faith. Why? Because we, we tell ourselves, we remind ourselves, it cost Christ everything. He has given everything for us. He has built us into a, a church. He is continually working in our life. We stand firm in our faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And we'll talk about that. That comes up in in just a little bit. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, this is the God of all grace. Remember, we stand in His grace. He is the God of all grace. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. He is the one doing it. Folks, that is powerful. That that sears into my conscience um, a, a hardness, a willingness, a determination. I'll do anything for Christ, for God, because of what He's done for me. Now that's, that's what it is to stand. Stand with conviction. We stand with the knowledge of God's grace in our life. We're not wavering. We know. We know these things. God's grace can be relied on, folks. Why can it be relied on? Because we didn't start it. We're not going to finish it. We're just, we're just standing. He's the one doing all of the work. It's, it's His grace and we just stand in it. Now, sometimes it's, it's hard. Sometimes it's, it's difficult. Sometimes we may be persecuted, but we just stand and then we look back and we see it was God that was strengthening us all along. He's the one that confirmed, strengthened, and established us. He's the one that perfected us. God gets the glory. We stand as a, as a beacon of light to a, a world that needs light. 
We stand. We stand. Maybe a quiet and peaceable life, taking every opportunity to share the gospel. We're, we're pretty insignificant people, but we stand. And then let God work, like we were talking about in Sunday school today. But the key is we don't waffle. We stand with conviction. We live our lives based upon principle, not just pragmatics. Principles based upon the Word of God. We stand as children of God. Now I'm afraid we have a Christianity today that is kind of distracted from standing. In fact, they want to go on, to, on the attack. And they, they think that it's their job to, to bind Satan, to, to go into the darkness and, and root him out and, and essentially, and then what we just need to do is get, get one good pastor, you know, and pray to, to bind Satan from the world, right? And just, just take care of it, just get rid of him. That's not God's plan at all. We, we don't have that. How arrogant. How arrogant. We don't bind Satan. We don't throw him from our house or throw him from this room or throw him from this city. That's kind of just territorial. That's, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We, we fight against, this is a, a truth war. That's what we're fighting. Not, not for territory, but for truth. And we stand for that truth. We stand with a, a righteous life in Christ, in the blood of Christ, and we stand for that truth. Now the world, the world's a different story. I mean, they, they're following Satan. They turn after Satan, First Timothy chapter 5. They share in Satan's lust, John 8, 44. They are blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 44, verse 4. They're deceived by Satan. They're ensnared by Satan and, and troubled by Satan. And they can even be possessed by Satan from time to time. And they're certainly going to be punished alongside of Satan in hell. That's scary. But believers are completely opposite. We can be agitated by Satan. We can be afflicted like Job. We can be tested like Christ. We can be sifted like Peter. Satan sifted him, but he resisted. Peter was not so strong. He was pretty weak, but in the long run, he was reinstated. But we resist. We resist. We, we arm ourselves with the armor of God that was uh, mentioned earlier. And we become watchful. We become serious for this roaring lion that's seeking someone to devour that we've seen in past passages. And then we overcome. How do we overcome? By the Word. It is written. It is written. That's what Christ said to Satan. We don't bind him. We don't try to cast him out. He'll flee from us if we would just resist. And, and it means this, is that we stand with conviction. Now that's going to look a little different for, for all of us. For a young man, standing with conviction. Mean, it would mean dating with purity. The world, man, the world doesn't know anything about that. Dating with purity. I'm going to stand with conviction. As a young man, I'm going to be pure till, till I get married. I'm going to stand with that conviction, that standing in the truth based upon the Word of God. As elders, this is strange. Elders, this week we have an elders meeting coming up. We're being told that we need to define, from biblical viewpoint obviously, we have to define male and female. We'll go through Scripture, we'll look at Scripture and 
we'll establish how this is male and female. How silly that is, but, but we're gonna take a stand and we're gonna, we're gonna stand firm in this. The world has different ideas. We have all kinds of things going on out there. But we stand under the conviction of the Word of God. This is what it says. We have to stand on this. We cannot, we cannot just flex on this stuff. We have to stand. The women may look a little different too. You're being told, no, you need to get out and conquer the world. You need to do these things and that thing and all this stuff. And we see in Scripture that it's the raising of the children that's the most important. Stand in that conviction. We as believers, we stand. We stand. It's a defensive posture. If we stand for truth and speak the truth, stand for truth, then Satan's going to bring the battle to us. It's a defensive battle. We, we, we brace ourselves for impact. We stand for the truth. And we look back and we say, God gave us the strength to stand. God's doing. And we trust His grace to do that. Let's look one more verse. Quickly, let's look at Peter's love for the church. Peter's love for the church. In verse 13. She who is in Babylon. I love that little phrase. That, that's Where does that come from? She who is in Babylon. Well, the word she there is probably referring to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is referred to as she uh, throughout uh, the New Testament from time to time. But who is in Babylon? What what is that? Well, we know that is the ancient city in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, that rebelled against God. They, they wanted to seek a name for themselves, and the Tower of Babel, and it came actually from that. And it was just known throughout the, the Scripture as th- that city, those cities that were fighting against God, those wicked people um, wanting a, a name for themselves. They are opposing God at every turn. And God then comes down and scatters them by changing the language. So we wouldn't take this literally. We wouldn't look for the city of Babylon. We would use it figuratively, and that's the way John, uh, the Apostle John used it in the book of Revelation. Babylon was, it, it kind of represented the entire world system, this wicked, corrupt world system, and that's the way John uses it in Revelation, uh, under the control of the Antichrist, and that's the way it's being used here. So what is he talking about? Most theologians, they agree that this is kind of code language for the city of Rome. Now that was where the heart of the persecution was. And, and, and Peter is more than likely, he was using some code language talking about the church that was in Rome. Why? Because that was the, the heat of the persecution was right there and he didn't want to put the church in jeopardy. So he uses some cryptic language a little bit there. This wicked world, this wicked city and this church is there. And listen what he says. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. This, this church. This church. Now they were first facing persecution. The, the outskirts of the Roman Empire, they were, they were anticipating the persecution, but in Rome, they had already seen it. They had already begun to happen. It was during Nero's uh, persecution that fire was, uh, you know, Rome was on fire and, and the per- children were, or the uh, Christians were being blamed for it. And, and so this was, this was leading up to that and they were right in the midst of this. And he does not want, he uses cryptic language to not jeopardize the church. But he says, together, chosen together, same body, part of the body of Christ. 
Let me remind you of chapter 5, verse 9. He says to resist the devil firm in your face, knowing that the experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Remember, remember, outskirts of Rome, here in Rome, we've got it. They're facing death. They're facing pursuit. They're being laid off from their jobs. They, maybe they were in prison. In fact, just a couple of years from now, Peter himself will lose his life along with his, his wife. And he says, we, we send you greetings. Soberness. Soberness. Real life. He says, together with you, send you greetings along with my son. This is probably spiritual son, Mark. He was very close to John Mark. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. You remember that, that story? Barnabas and Saul went out on the first missionary journey. John Mark went with them and he abandoned the station a little bit into the journey, the first leg of the journey really. And, and he wanted to go on the second missionary journey and Paul refused and it, it caused a, a rift, a split between the two. And so Barnabas took John Mark and, and reinstated him and, and Paul took who? Silas. And I want you to see this. This is so neat. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 40. Acts chapter 15, verse 40. Let me just read this one verse. And Paul... Well, let me read verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that separated one... Uh, separated from one another, that Barnabas took John, uh, took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. This is John Mark. Barnabas went together. They mm, went to a different place. But Paul chose Silas and left uh, being committed to the brethren in the grace of God. He and Silas. Now these two same men in, in the same passage. This is so neat. Silas was a faithful brother committed to the truth. John Mark was, he was young. He was, he waffled at the, at the beginning. And then Paul says a little bit later on, 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, John Mark, bring him with you, Timothy, because he has become useful to me. John Mark was reinstated. He kind of, he kind of waffled. He wasn't as, as strong. He was very much like Peter. Peter knows how that feels to be reinstated. Having fallen and, and now being brought back and being found useful. And Peter probably remembers the, the discussion that Christ had with him at that little time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter is reinstated and, and Peter so graciously brings in John Mark, who waffled. John Mark became useful. Peter knows how that feels. And the two of them, they send their greeting. Send their greeting from the church. And Peter uh, says, greet one another with a kiss of love or a holy kiss, the King James says. And what you have here is, is not a, a real command per se, but it's, it's, it's greet one another. Show compassion for one another. These are serious times. Be committed to one another. Show that affection. Today we would just shake hands. We show that kind of affection. This holy kiss wouldn't have been a sexual thing. It would have been men with men, women with women. It would have been a customary thing, sign of affection of that day. It's just a sign of affection. And I started thinking, how do we show affection today? We really don't. We shake hands. COVID took care of that. 
bump elbows, show affection. What you see here is a a father-son kind of relationship. Peter sees these churches and, and he, the older Peter, looks as a father and he, he's, he's scared for these young churches, these small churches on the outskirts and he, he wants to, he can't stop the suffering. He can't stop the potential persecution. He can't even be there to hold their hand. He, he, but he, he wants to send a letter. And, and he's got sobering stuff, and it's as though he's saying, you have to sober up. You have to be a man. You have to grow up. Take the responsibilities yourself. And Peter loves these people. He loves these people. And he's just saying, whatever circumstances that, that God would have for you, yield to those circumstances. Stand firm against the devil. And then, the, the important part, I think, in verse 11 and four, or 13 and 14, is the fact that they stand together. They stand together. You see the warm feeling of, of greeting here. And they stand together. We'll, we'll close with this. They, they stand together like, like the Statue of Liberty just stands that's all it does. We go, we look at the Statue of Liberty. Oh, that is all it does. Well, yeah, it just stands. But it's a symbol, isn't it? It's a symbol for freedom to, to many people. They come and, and they want to see this. And it's a stand. It's a, a symbol of freedom. It stands for freedom. It's like a lighthouse. The light cannot go out. It has to stand no matter what the circumstances. It has to stand. There's ships out there that are counting on it. Folks, there's souls out there that are counting on your life, your testimony, your witness of the Gospel. We stand. We stand. No matter how difficult it is, despite the waves crashing in, if you look at your bulletin, you've got a picture of a, a lighthouse. And I just think that's a great illustration. We don't go on the attack. Christ has done the work. He's killed Satan. He has crushed Satan. We don't try to condemn Satan. How arrogant of us to think we don't, that we could do that. We, we don't try to take back territory. No, we are in a truth war. We don't turn and run. What do we do? We stand, folks. We stand. And listen, we stand together. These people are are hundreds of miles apart. Peter would love to have been there with each one of those churches, but he can't. He just sends an encouraging letter. And they stand together. They stand together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this precious Word. How important it is to us to know the mind of God in this issue, on this issue, in this area of persecution. Lord, give us men and women that stand with conviction. May we not be so flexible that the world just beats on us and we just cave to the world's pressure. We just fall into the world's worldview. The world's lies that Satan has fed them. The deceit of Satan in this world. Lord, may we stand for the truth. May we stand for righteousness. And Lord, I thank You for knowing that You are the one that gives us the strength to, to be able to do that. And then Lord, thank You for the privilege of knowing that we stand together. 
It's what a church does. It's what a church is. We don't cave. We stand together. We encourage one another. We can't take away the personal responsibilities of each person, but we can stand together and encourage one another and pray for one another and care for one another. We thank you for the precious church that you've given us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.